0: Well, 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 good morning, church. Woo. Man, uh, it really is. As Brady said this morning, uh, when he led us in some time to pray for the circumstances that we just walked through uh, this last week, it really is incredible uh, to be able to gather here together, uh, to come together and to be stirred up and spurred on toward love and good deeds, to remember Uh, who the person of Jesus is, what work he has done and is doing and will do for us and who we are considering who he is, right? I mean, it is just good to gather up and to be able to come together for that purpose. And on any regular ordinary week, It is so good to do that. So necessary. In fact, commanded by scripture not to neglect this reality. But on a week like this, when we just walked through the circumstances we did with the storm that rolled through, it is particularly awesome. I mean, Friday, we were texting back and forth, like power's still out at the building. What's plan B? You know, like there is, there is good reason to think that we may not have been able to do this just by consequence of loss of power, right? And yet it came back on. So it is just good. Just kind of sit in that for a second. We shouldn't be here, yet we are. How good is that? You know, it's good. It's good, right? And Part of what is so good about gathering up is that it affords us the opportunity together to be reminded that regardless of circumstances, regardless of relational dynamics, regardless of resource challenges, that Jesus is the place that is our safe place, our security, our our everything, our enough, isn't it? It's, It's good to do that. And yet, gathering up here, we say those words often. He is my everything, my enough, my safe and secure place until the world doesn't feel safe, secure enough uh, or everything. And then we're like, where are you? Right? It's a natural part of our human experience. And so the question really does become like, are those just words we say that we intellectually believe, but it's a, a huge struggle to make them a part of what we experience? Or is there in fact reality to the fact that that is not only a truth, but one that we can and should experience and live in, in regularity, transcendent of the circumstances, relational dynamics and resource challenges of our dailiness. So Paul Uh, Is writing right now uh, a a letter to Timothy. Historically speaking, that's where we are in our historical context. Paul is in Rome in prison uh, again, and uh, Timothy is in Ephesus. Uh, Paul has sent Timothy or left Timothy in Ephesus specifically to shepherd the church there and specifically to confront and reorient and shepherd some of the leaders there uh, that have. Uh, begun to misuse the truths of God, uh, to to use them for their own financial gain, for their own uh, authority, for their own pride. uh, And in that misuse are teaching falsely, which now has consequences uh, on the experience and expression of that church as it relates to the gospel. And and so Paul's like, this this needs to be reoriented. And Timothy, you are the one I'm going to send. I would come if I could but I, I can't, I'm in prison, so so you go. Uh, and, and we know that Paul would come if he could, because even in the letter, he says, I, I'm writing this letter to you now because I am hopeful I will come soon. But in the meantime, uh, or if I don't at all, then this letter will give you, Timothy, what you need to give to the church, what they need in order to live their lives in a manner that represents well the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore advances his kingdom, that behaves in the manner that those who follow Jesus ought to behave not because they have to but because they are deeply transformed by what they now know. So this is this is Paul's writing, right? And in the early part of this letter that Paul is writing, uh He is unpacking for Timothy the reality of what he is encountering with these false teachers, and he's fairly specific. So he says to us, uh, to Timothy particularly, and then through that to us, that these particular false teachers, what they are misusing is the early parts of the Old Testament, what we call the law. They are taking that and using it inappropriately, falsely. So these teachers, are speculating about the law, establishing truths out of their speculation, using those truths to lord over, gain financial gain and extend pride. And he's like, this has got to stop. So what Timothy just recently did that we covered last week was that he is demonstrating just in case there is some confusion that the law is the problem and that under Jesus, we can now say the law was, was uh, uh, not only useless, but, but really uh, the law is, is not good. He's like, no, 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 time out. The problem is not the law because the law is the declaration of what righteousness is. It's, it's, it's all it really is. It's like, you want to know what righteousness looks like? This is what it looks like internally, externally. The law is good, but the use of the law in terms of what it is useful for when we use it rightly, lawfully, then it is powerful. When we use it wrongly, unlawfully, then it is a, a, a giant detriment, dangerous and unhelpful. And what Paul is trying to demonstrate in what he unpacked in this letter that we covered last week is That what the law is good for is to give us a clarity of what is righteousness so that before we come to Jesus, we are exposed in our unrighteousness, uh, then leading us to beg the question, how do we change this when we try ourselves and can't? And then we come to know the necessity of the great redemptive work of Jesus. And we come to understand that he is our savior and our need that the law does really Really well. And then, post coming to Jesus, the law gives us the means by which we can begin our journey of participation with God in seeing ourselves shaped into his likeness, that he's not just doing it uh, for us, though he is doing it for us, but he's inviting us to participate with him in becoming like him. And we now have this beautiful law to say, uh, pay attention to some of this. Uh, Look at this, this gives you direction. So the law is powerful, in directing our path with Jesus, it is terrible in trying to save us because it can't save us. So you're with me so far? And you're like, well, we covered this last week. Yes, we did. We can cover it a hundred more weeks in a row and it won't be enough. A thousand more weeks in a row and it won't be enough. So don't worry. This is repetitive because it needs to be and you'll see that in a second. Okay, so now here's what Paul's gonna do uh, l- last week. He, he, he said, here's the law. It's good used this way, not this way. And then to demonstrate that, He brings in his own personal story of his encounter with Jesus, right? And he unpacks the gospel for us in terms of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Paul's summary of that is essentially this as he unpacks it. Listen, when I encounter Jesus, some things happen. First of all, the fact that I'm writing this letter... The fact that I got to be a participant in planting the church in Ephesus, the fact that I planted any church whatsoever, the fact that I preached the gospel at any time, anywhere, ever to anyone, the fact that I even could preach the gospel, got to preach the gospel, the fact that I got to know Jesus, got to understand from the apostles the journey, got to engage in the story, the fact that I am sitting here on his behalf, the fact that I do anything at all in any way for the kingdom of God, is an absolute mystery and I can't fathom how he would have let me do that that's where he started he's like he he saw me as faithful do you understand how insane that is Paul says I was not faithful it's almost like Paul's like I but look I'm writing I, I was not faithful and yet he declares me faithful and, and allows me to participate mind blown and then Paul goes from then he's like oh Oh, but that, that's like one thing. Let's just let's just get to the other thing right here. One thing to say, he lets me be any part of the majestic story of redemption, powerful. But let's just go to life itself, okay? He let me live. Shouldn't have happened. Shouldn't have happened. So forget purpose and life and oh my gosh, I'm part of a grand story. I should be dead. Like dead, like right there instantly. Why? Because remember what he said? I was an insolent opposer of Jesus when I met him uh, Paul yeah wrong team buddy right and he's like wow when that happened what should have happened he should have obliterated me he should have gone ah, oh, not only wrong team but man like I sustain your very existence blink no more that's what should have happened. But he didn't. He didn't. He he saved me. He made me alive. He kept me alive. He let me not only be, but become his. So Paul's blown away. I mean, just that I'm alive at all is crazy. And then Paul's like, and, and, hold, hold. Not only all this, but but he... He has for us a future, and he unpacks in that passage, th- the reason he saved me, the reason he, that it wasn't because I was faithful or I didn't know what I was doing. He mentions both those. He's like, he saved me because he's merciful, because he's gracious. And when he did that for me, who such in such expressive ways demonstrated my incompetency of the law by not even recognizing Jesus, though I knew it better than anybody else, and my absolute opposition of God, even though I didn't know what I was doing, I demonstrated my crazy stupidity and incapacity. He saved me so that you would know that whatever you bring to the table that should eliminate you from being alive or, or in any part, part of his story, that actually his mercy saves you so that you have eternal life. And then Paul puts the third piece on the table. Don't you understand that we shouldn't have life now when we encounter Jesus? When sin encounters Jesus, it dies. We are by nature children of wrath and sin. When we encounter Jesus, we should die. So you should at all costs avoid Jesus. But when we encounter him, we don't die. He makes us alive. This is Paul, right? And then when we are made alive, we are invited into the story. And when we're invited to the story, we find out, wait, I have a future of eternal what? Life. We use that word like eternal life versus like eternal death. That's because we don't pay attention to the word death. Do you know what death is? And so when you put the word life in contrast to the word death, you should, you should have this like blood drained from your face gratitude of like... That would have been my future. Instead, my future is life. And everything that that word encompasses, which we'll get to. This is Paul. It's reminiscent of what he wrote in the book of Ephesians when he summarized the gospel in Ephesians chapter two. Remember, we said, oh gosh, we're children of wrath. Uh, We're all dead. We're all dead. And then he's like, but God, verse four, Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in love and mercy did what? Made us alive step one wow shouldn't have happened then he says and he now uh, jesus seated in the right hand of the father in heaven waits for us uh, in the ages to come here's what he said remember it's like it's enough that we're alive but no when we get there into the kingdom of life with the god of life here's his big plan for us read it in ephesians chapter two here's his big plan for us You're going to come to my kingdom of nothing but life with me who's nothing but life, which means you have everything your little soul has ever fathomed possible with the absence of everything your soul has ever wished to be absent. And here's gonna be my big plan. In that context, I will lavish upon you my kindness for the ages to come so that you would just know over and over and over and over again how kind I am. Because you'll just be like, enough kindness! I, I'm gonna burst! And then he's gonna go, I've made you unburstable. I can pour kindness into you for the rest of eternity, and you will be able to tolerate it. Because you must know my kindness beyond your capacity to know kindness. Are you are you with me here? Like that's what's going on here. Paul's just like he's like riding. Now, we're going to arrive at a verse. We haven't actually gotten to the part we're preaching today. So halfway through the sermon, as usual, Renaud. Um, But we cannot enter this next space without this context because this next space, its most profound wonder is in what is happening in Paul as he writes it, rather than its strategy and its pure and beautiful purpose. We know that the Spirit of God inspiring Paul is measuring every word of this letter because it is scripture and it all matters. We know that Paul's strategy to make sure that at each juncture of unpacking something hard or beautiful, he's going to exalt Jesus in this letter several times as sort of a, a a, a, a stopgap to say before we go on. Remember, who's the king? Jesus. Who's the awesome? Jesus. So it's strategic that at this juncture, Paul's going to say, "Don't don't forget." Also, he has unpacked for us that a sound doctrine and a clear understanding of the gospel and who Jesus is is a necessity if we're gonna be a church, a people that love each other and love the world and love God rightly and well, right? You cannot love rightly if you don't love in the way that God defines love and you cannot know that unless you know truth. So truth cannot be absent in order to love even when truth seems to preclude us from being able to love because the culture or our little hearts have a different truth. That was a lot. Go podcast it. It's all over. But it's a true statement. And so what he's saying is, man, sound doctrine matters. So after this, the law is good, but only if it's used rightly. Jesus is good when? All the time. All the time, right? And so Jesus is our savior. He is our safe place. And now it makes sense strategically to say, who's the king? That's about to happen. But... If you follow Paul, and we have, and I have because we've read most of his letters now, and we know his historical life, and we know how he thinks and preaches and, and, and writes. Whenever I'm sitting with letters with Paul, I remind myself that in some insanity in our cultural context and perhaps in multiple cultures in the world, we have come to believe we are supposed to read this thing like a textbook that what you're reading is information. And so you should read it with no tone, no emotion. No, And you're like, well, I read it. No, I mean, like when we read scripture, we will just read through entire passages and move to different junctures in the passage. Like it's the next piece of information we need. Here's the law. Here's why it's not good. Here's what Jesus did for me. Uh, It's pretty awesome. He is the king. Uh, Here's the next point you should pay attention to. But have you ever sat down and either written uh, or, or spoke out out or sat with someone that you have a dear relationship with and you're talking about things that are dear to you. What happens to your eyes when you start talking about a sad thing or a happy thing? You know, often I stand in this lobby with you all and we're in a conversation and you are sharing. I'm like, how are you? And you're like, actually, this week's been really hard. And now you have to speak out that hard thing. My mother-in-law is dying or my friend is. And what happens to you internally? The first thing you all say to me is, I'm so sorry because a tear starts coming. And then I say to you, don't be sorry. This is worthy of grief because we have this thing in us that God put in us. That is, we become overwhelmed when we are, when we are faced with something either overwhelmingly hard or overwhelmingly beautiful. You with me? So now Paul's writing. We're about ready to read the verse, okay? Paul's writing and he's like, the law is good. Don't use it to try to save yourself. Jesus saves us. Look what he did for me. And now he's writing out what he did for me. And as Paul writes what God has done for him, as Paul is putting pen to paper, and then he sh- I should be dead? Actually, I, I shouldn't even be writing this letter. Actually, I shouldn't even have eternal life. I was an incompetent opposer of all things Jesus. Though I should have known better, but didn't, I should be dead. But he, he made me alive. I know Paul, and what he writes next was not written in my estimation. I'll ask him when I die one day. It was not written in my estimation as a strategic placement of a verse, but as an overwhelming response to something he couldn't help himself doing because he's writing about God's story of him and God's gospel and saving. So look what happens. Uh, We're in 1 Timothy chapter one. uh, We're gonna read verse 17, but don't yet, don't cheat. Um, Verse 13 through 16 is where Paul tells his story. Here's what Jesus has done for me. I'm sure as a starting point, just to make a point, but he can't get through it. He can't even get through it without getting to the end of it. And then he writes these words, verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he sits and he composes himself and he brushes the tears from his face. And he goes, okay, so this I charge, oh this charge, I... and he starts writing again. We, we must stop here and pause here and sit with Paul here in the overwhelming response of worship that is born out of him because he has just written of the mercies of Jesus toward him as Paul, toward us as people. And he can't but help himself to just go, Oh, you are the king of kings, the only true God. Now, it happens to be incredible doctrine. Ah! It happens to be strategically placed. It happens to be perfectly right in every way. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And it happens to be all of Paul's emotional overwhelmness. You might say, well, that's a, you're saying a lot about what Paul felt. I, I am, and we don't know what he felt, but we do know this. This book is written in regular language. I mean, whatever the original language was, but like regular uh, writing. You, you write like you're writing an essay, right? Um, And then on occasion, briefly, in these little moments, it switches from essay writing, right, to a poem. A little poem just shows up in the middle of the book. How weird is that? Like, let's just own the weirdness of that for a second. We read the Bible like it's just all ordinary, but there's a lot happening. And he's like, uh, here's what you need to do, and the law is this, and Jesus is here. Poem! And then back to the regular, regular writing. Poem! The regular, regular writing. Poem! And you know what each poem is in this book? It's the moment that he has to stop and go, well, I just, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, folks, but I just need to look at Jesus for a second and just be in awe. Why do we write poetry? When do we write poetry? I mean, those of us that are incredible at poetry, those of us that are terrible at poetry, why do we write it? I mean, all of you have tried. I know. And just, let's just be honest. The first time you try to write a poem is probably sometime in elementary school when you fell in love. And you saw that person across the way and you were like, I've got to write something to them to declare to them the feelings of my heart. And it dawned on you, poetry. (laughs) Like you don't write something like that in regular writing. You write that in something that like rhymes. (laughs) Why? Like, why do we write poetry when we read poetry? Why does it feel different than reading an essay? Because poetry is a means by which we take feelings too big for regular words and try to give the words feelings. We can say the same thing in regular words and our feelings are described in those regular words. But somehow when it comes into poetry or song, those kinds of art forms of expressing information, it is an art form because we have moved from trying to express information now to try to express feeling. I'm feeling something and I dare not write this in regular information. I need to write it in words that move to art, for they must hold this. And then I write them and I'm like, wow, that's terrible. I should just express them in regular words. And then we grieve, don't we? I wish I was a good poet, because it's just not right. Paul here switches suddenly from regular writing to poetry. And this is his poetry. This is the whole poem. Here it is. In the original language, here's the poem. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And then back to regular writing. And so as I see it, it is profoundly interesting to me That Paul's, not just response, but Paul's experience of sitting in the gospel again and remembering again what God has done for him. In this case, for purposes of someone else's benefit, it is impossible for him to even do this for someone else without then finding himself overwhelmed. And I think that's extraordinary and beautiful. It's almost as though I feel a bit like Paul's like, shoot, every time I need to sit over a cup of coffee again or write in a letter again, okay, here's what God's done for me. I need to brace myself because I'm going to encounter that thing. And for the thousands of times I've encountered it, it never seems to grow old. Paul has written this in many other of his letters. I mean, he wrote the book of Romans, for goodness sakes. The, the the most in-depth unpacking of all of this he wrote the book of ephesians with the best summary of it all he's written it into every other letter at some point doesn't it just get old and apparently not and so uh, i begin to wonder isn't it interesting that god would tell us as his people come back every day, every hour, every minute, if you can, and preach to your own heart, to the hearts of the others who know me, preach the good news of the gospel. Remember who I am. Remember who you are in me. Because when we come back to the gospel, we start realizing Whatever else is circling in my life that feels overwhelming and feels like it is declaring God's absence, God's lack of goodness, God's lack of power, God's lack of care, God's whatever. I come back to this space. I was dead. Now I am alive. I was purposeless running like a rat in a cage on a planet of death to try to make myself feel better about myself by doing something selfishly for the other selfish humans. And now I have been invited by the God of the universe and empowered by the God of the universe, by his very being itself, his spirit, to come alongside him and to take the kingdom of darkness and the gates of hell and shove them backwards until they are no more. Who does that? Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how we obsess as a culture on God's purpose for my life. How often do you not find yourself in conversations where you're like, I just want to find out what God made me for. Is it a teacher or a plumber or a doctor or a a politician or a pastor? I don't know which one it is. I just want to make sure I find my purpose. Should I be single or married? Should I have kids? We just obsess constantly about the little teeny tiny purpose God might hand us to try to bring us a sense of significance. And God's like, oh, sorry, uh, if I wasn't and clear all those things they're all they're great I mean it's fine you know but they're just all means by which you live out your purpose which is to shove the gates of hell backwards until we are done with them and I am shoving and you're coming alongside me and you're pushing with all your little might. And I love that. But just so you know, if you ever feel overwhelmed, we're not making any progress. I'm just kind of doing one of these like, I'm holding it back a bit so you can feel like you're really playing a big role. Wow. wow, This is some good pushing. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Okay. Come, 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 Okay. Start pushing. Start, start. I can't do it. No, I understand. I do. That is our story. God spoke. From his throne in Revelation to John. Angel spoke for him. He's, he's going he's gonna to do this and that. And then God finally speaks in Revelation 21. And what does he say? He says this. He says two things. I am making everything. All things. All of it. What? New. And then he turns this. Write it, write it down, John. You can go read it. You should write write that down. God says it to John. I never never get over that. Put Put your jaw back. Write it down. We serve a God who has no need of us shoving with him. But we serve a God who has purposed us to shove with him so that our intrinsic value and worth is not something that was either self-generated or something that existed before. It is only now because he has bestowed it upon us and given us value in the story. We have no worth and no value outside of the bestowed value that Jesus has given us. Prior to him bestowing it, we were useless with no worth, worthy of nothing but damnation. And you're like, you can't say that. Humans are born with value. (sighs) Heart awakening coming your way. When we were created, we were created with deep value and worth. Because by definition, the God who created us made us and that made us worth it. Now, buckle up because this is a good space to be reminded. When sin came into our story as the virus that it is by the voluntary, insane disobedience of the human race through our lovely ancestors, Adam and Eve, that we would have done the same with. When that happened, sin stole everything. I'm going to say that again. Sin stole everything. See, you think sin just made it hard for you to do good things. You think sin just stole your eternal life. You think sin just made you a little worse. Sin stole everything. It stole your worth. It stole your value. It stole your power. It stole your created purpose. It stole your future. It stole your present. It stole your heart. It stole your soul. It stole your mind. It stole your body. It took it all and it made it all dead. You have nothing. I have nothing because sin took it all. And then Jesus walked in and he grabbed sin by the throat and he said, give it back. And he took it back and he gave it back to us. And he wasn't even done because he goes, now that you have how much back? Everything. When you die, I'm going to give you more. How do you get more than everything? When you serve this God, your imagination has no room to imagine how much more waits. Do you understand why Paul is doing this? He's got all this in his head as he's just writing this little paragraph. Do you understand now why he goes, (laughs) poetry to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When we come and we remember, when we come and we sit in the gospel, when we come and speak it to our own souls and speak it to each other, when we come, here's what happens. The gospel reminds us that whatever is lost because of the circumstances of this planet, Whatever is lost because of the relational dynamics we are in. The sickness or health we are dealing with. The gain or the loss of a birth of a baby or the death of a loved one. The storms that roll in. The realities that come. Whatever is lost. When I can step back and say, but what have I? And I bring the gospel to bear. I have how much? Everything. Paul I have no doubt begged God when he was on that ship that it was in that giant storm that ended up getting shipwrecked and he floated in the ocean for a ton of days with the sharkies. I have no doubt Paul said, God, would you make the storm go away? You're sovereign. You're powerful. Make it go away. God didn't. The the ship wrecked and Paul floated. When Paul was uh, thrown into a hole on his way to Rome and he lived there for years, not days, not months, years, when God had purposed him to preach the gospel in Spain. You don't think Paul said God? Just out of curiosity, just throwing it on the table, uh, you've given me a calling and you've given me the power and competence to do it. And your big plan for me is to have me sit alone in a hole in Capernaum waiting to get to Rome that I might never get to. And if I do, I'll sit in another hole there. You don't think Paul begged God for answers? Oh, I have no doubt he did. But time and time again, as Paul wrote these letters and as Paul engaged with God, you see him coming and arriving at this. I have known fullness of food and lack thereof. I have known freedom and imprisonment. I have known floating in water with sharks because a storm wasn't changed by the sovereign God. I've known loss and gain. I've known sickness and health. And I've learned the secret of my contentment. That Christ is always my everything. My enough. Not that Christ makes my things better. That I don't need better. Because he's everything. When we come to the gospel... I dare say I am discovering through Paul's story and the story of the others. And now, perhaps in some small way as I progress into my aging, a bit through my story, that it seems this thing that we call the gospel, this message that seems like a transfer of information, this truth that is the work of Jesus in his life, death and resurrection and the promise of Jesus in what he promises for our future and the work of the spirit in sanctifying us and rescuing us. All that the gospel that I can come back to it over and 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 over again. And it never gets old because it is not information. Paul says in Romans this gospel is the power unto salvation, not just to rescue me when it once did, but to keep rescuing my heart from the complacency of the erosion of the circumstances. And so, My friends, I come to Isaiah chapter 40 as I think, God, what would it be like that I might on a more regular basis, perhaps even, dare I say, in my dailiness, in the midst of these things that feel so, where are you, God? How do I come here where my response ends up just being like, king of the ages, invisible, immortal, worthy of all glory? Thank you for this hurricane. How do I do this? Listen to Isaiah that I think so desperately and beautifully describes Paul's response in this verse. Isaiah chapter 40 is an amazing chapter of Isaiah just pouring out. Do you have any idea who God is? Because if you don't read this, and then here's what he says in Isaiah 40, uh, chapter 28, listen to this. Um, uh, Yeah, that's right. 27, I'm sorry. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. None of us ever do that. I understand that. But just hypothetically, if you as a human go, Where are you? It's okay. It happens to all of us, and it will be, keep happening to all of us. But here's what he says Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives Power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fail and fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Here's what he's saying. When you come to your day and everything is big and you are like, God, I've begged, where are you? Pause and ask your own little soul. Have you not heard? Do you not know? Have you forgotten? Do you not remember? This is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, transcendent, powerful, a knowledge unsearchable. The King of the ages, who has made you alive, given you a hope and a future, in which he will lavish his kindness on you until you don't know what to do with yourself, and has called you into a story. Where he empowers you to shove the gates of darkness backwards until they are no more. Through ordinary things like being husbands, wives, friends, roommates, plumbers, doctors, lawyers, politicians, pastors, friends, parents, children, regular, ordinary things. Shove them backwards because he has given us great purpose. Remember this. And if you do, the power of the gospel that it will stir in you worship and you will fall to your knees and write a poem from your own heart to God's. May we be a people that preach the gospel to ourselves and each other all the time so that we would never forget and that we would live in a space of awe and worship. Pray with me. God, We are surrounded by so much on this crazy planet that gives us every reason to cry out. Are you blind? Do you not see us? Have you forgotten our needs, rights, our desires? And yet, you have shown us with such clarity this beautiful truth, the gospel. That all of those things, though they are worthy of our joy and our grief when they occur. And we should not think you are asking us to ignore them. Because in them, sorrow and suffering and joy and excitement, we find more of you. But they are not our safe place. They are not our security. They are not what will bring us contentment if they were just void Of the heart. You are all that. And so God help us. To find new ways together. And by ourselves. To come like Paul did. And write in regularity. Speak in regularity. Sing in regularity. Declare in regularity. The wonders. Of who you are. And what you've done for us. And who we are now because of you. Sin took it all. And you took it back. And gave it back to us. And you will give us more than we had before sin took it all. You are the King of the Ages. You, you are the immortal, invisible, gracious King of the Ages. And to you be all glory and power and honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen.